My name is Katrina Irwin, and welcome to House on Fire. When I was a senior in college, I read a book that changed my life. It was about climate change. It wasn't about the impacts to the climate crisis, though. It was about the solutions that exist and are ready to be implemented. I truly believe that the solution to the climate crisis is advocacy and education. And we use of industry, attorney. Methane has a lifetime of maybe a decade in the atmosphere. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. In the United States, scientists found that streets in poor areas were up to 3 to 10 degrees Celsius hotter. Of course, we can still turn this around. It is entirely possible. I'm no longer a recent college graduate. I'm now 25 and a program manager with the Clio Institute. I'm a lifelong Miamian, and I am so excited for you all to welcome my new co-host and lifelong Floridian, Glenis Navarrete. Hello, everyone. It's so nice to be here. I am 28 years old with my degree in environmental science. I am currently the schools and youth programs associate program manager for the Clio Institute, and I couldn't be more dedicated to fighting this good fight with you all. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to House on Fire. Today, we have the chance to catch up with the chief of staff for the newly formed Office of State and Community Energy Programs at the U.S. Department of Energy, a Miami native that is turning ideas into solutions that create a better world, and a longtime friend of the Clio Institute, Chris Castro. We are so happy to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing so well. Thank you for the invite. And um, I'm really excited to share some insights about SCEP and the work that we're doing here at the Department of Energy to accelerate our transition to the clean energy future. Yeah, absolutely. You were also doing something like really interesting before we started our recording today. Would you mind telling our listeners what you were just doing? That way they could yeah. kind of get an idea of what you do every day. Most definitely. So I'm just coming back right now, just minutes away from the Tribal Energy Summit. This is one, an inaugural summit that's hosted by the U.S. Department of Energy that brought together dozens of uh, Indian tribal governments across the country to really learn more about how to take advantage of a lot of the great resources that the Department of Energy has, how to create partnerships and, and ultimately move towards a more sovereign energy future for our, our tribal government. So um, it was wonderful to be able to interact and, and really hear from them about the issues on the ground and ways that the Department of Energy can can meaningfully address those um, through funding, through technical assistance and other ways to engage their communities. Oh my gosh, that is, that's amazing. Yeah, that's so freaking <laughs> cool. Like we could do a whole episode on that. We probably could, yeah. <laughs> It was very interesting. And uh, and tomorrow is day two. So we get to actually do more uh, engagements with the tribal leaders where they'll go around kind of different roundtables and be able to dive deep and provide some some questions specifically about their needs and, and again, navigate the complexity of everything that's going on here with all the funding and, and resources that DOE has today. That's amazing. So, so like the people listening right now are like, oh, my gosh, this is like the busiest high level official. How did you guys even get him on the show? So Chris actually mm -hmm. used to do a lot of work with Cleo in the past, and mm -hmm. we knew him before he went federal. So can you tell the listeners at home a little bit about the background of the work you've done in Florida and the work you've done here? Also, fun fact and plug that I have to give Chris Castro and the old host of House on Fire and founder of the Cleo Institute, Caroline Lewis, we're actually in a documentary called Paris to Pittsburgh together. Check that out. But I'll, yes. I'll give that back to you, Chris. 
I love it. Well, you know, my journey as a sustainability leader dates back to really my upbringing as a kid. I'm a second generation Cuban American, born and raised in Miami, Florida, and actually was fortunate to have a stepdad who was an entrepreneur and actually had a, a palm tree nursery business uh, from as far back as I can remember. Wow. And uh, growing up on on a palm tree farm, um, you can imagine at first it's it's not the best. It's, uh, you know, it's usually something like, Chris, you're punished. You're going to the farm this weekend <laughs> type of thing. And, and it really turned into uh, a real affinity and a true respect for nature and the natural world. Uh, I'm also an avid surfer. And when I was growing up, my mm-hmm. parents used to take us every summer up uh, up the East Coast of Florida to find uh, usually somewhere in Central Florida around Cocoa or, or, or New Smyrna Beach. And, and we'd actually spend a long weekend there. Uh, on the beach. And and I think that's where I I really began to understand that one day I wanted to do everything I could to protect, to restore and to regenerate the natural world mm-hmm. in balance and in harmony with, with people, right? How can mm-hmm. people in nature live in harmony with one another and thrive? And, and to me, that was a mission that was worth living for, right? So fast mm-hmm. forward to my years, I went up to the University of Central Florida in Orlando, Go nice. I actually arrived there as an undergraduate major, okay. not really knowing what I wanted to do, but knew I wanted to be in this space. And after an intro course into sustainability, I decided to pursue my degree in environmental science and policy with a focus mm. on clean energy. And, um, you know, from that passion around clean energy and this kind of transition from the energy that built our world to the energy that's truly going to shape the future as we know it, I decided to pursue an independent study with a biology professor to to really look into and further research how can we convert pollution and carbon emissions that is you know coming from industrial sites and power plants and paper mills and how can we use those pollutants as a usable input to mm-hmm. grow algae and eventually turn that algae into advanced biofuels wow. that can eliminate wow. the need for fossil fuels and to me, that was like, this is incredible. We're taking a you know multi-million year process of getting fossil fuels, of creating fossil fuels, right? Of you know heat and pressure and, and all of the organic matter of plants uh, over time. And instead, we're growing algae in a matter of, of hours, turning that into a usable fuel. I feel and like so I've seen commercials I started for that. to get really excited and researching this topic as an undergrad. And I found out quickly that the Department of Energy had actually started a 16-year research study on this exact topic of algae fuels, and it was called the Aquatic Species Program. This is back when uh, we had President Jimmy Carter, who was a farmer himself, Mm -hmm. and he launched this whole effort because his idea was that if we can transition away from diesel fuel through the use of algae, we can not only improve the environment, but also public health and our economy and the like. And, and so that really made way to my peaking my interest in the clean energy space. I ended up getting a two-year work study at the Department of Energy, where I'm at today, in the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. They call it EERE. And, and this was during the Recovery Act, right, when we had a huge infusion of money. And it was amazing to be able to come in every day and really learn about how we were accelerating this transition to clean energy and, and trying to transition away from uh, you know, fossil fuels. And and I think that's the experience that ultimately changed my trajectory, my career. Uh, it led me to start several nonprofits and companies in this space, like Ideas for Us and Citizen Energy and Climate First Bank. Uh, these are these are different examples of firms that I've, I've helped to start. 
And all of those are really focused on advancing this clean energy economy, helping commercial and, and residential and multifamily buildings retrofit their properties to be more energy and water efficient and more sustainable. So that's a little journey about my career. And, and that actually brings me to the position right before I left. And uh, it was in the city of Orlando. Uh, right when I was running this, uh, you know, several of these companies and organizations, I was pulled in by Mayor Dyer, uh, who asked me to join his administration and develop a comprehensive clean energy strategy for Orlando, uh, which later I was promoted into being the director of Greenworks Orlando, um, also known as the Office of Sustainability and Resilience. And man, there's a lot that we could talk about there. I think I'm going to take a pause here, though, and um, and see if you have any follow-ups. So when did you realize that you were him? Because basically what you're saying is you're Hemi Neutron at this point. You are that boy. <laughs> <laughs> like, I am so amazed at all of, all of the things that you've accomplished. And you're still so young. You're only in your 30s. And by by your 20s already, you were a Florida climate powerhouse. It's inspiring. Mm. Um, I need yeah. to know just a little more about how you gained or why you think you gained all this success at such a young age. And and please give some advice to our younger listeners because you have no idea the spark that you're about to get into some of these brains mm -hmm. right now because wow. Yeah, and another thing too, like there's a lot of ageism, right? Like in the professional workforce and you were doing things that people don't get to do until they're in their 50s. So like, how did you combat that as well? Yeah, th these are really important questions um, as we start to nurture the next generation of of sustainability leaders yeah. and climate champions, right? Like this isn't going to be solved with just Chris Castro, Katrina and Gabby on, on the phone here, right? This is really about empowering a whole entire generation. And, you know, I think for me, I, I quickly realized that this work is very hard and <laughs> it's something that needs to be part of who you are and not necessarily what you do as a job. And, and very much when I look across my last 15 years of, of working in this space, you know, a big, you know, theme that I see across it is that I've I've volunteered a lot of my time to getting the experience and building the networks that have allowed me to get to these positions of power, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and and so when I was a student, here's a good example. I remember being a junior at UCF and I had this schedule where on Tuesdays and Thursdays I had about four hours of free time and I didn't really want to go all the way home and then have to come back and just waste that time. Instead, I approached the sustainability and energy management office at the university and I said, hey, I'm here. I have eight hours a week. I can give it to you for free at no cost. I just want experience. I want to be able to be part of this sustainability transition and I want to make UCF a leader in it. And literally that led me to helping to write the climate action plan, ending up getting a part-time job as a student in that office, leading all the community engagement on campus. And it allowed me to get that experience that ultimately um, propelled me into you know, the other positions that, that followed. Um, and so that's one thing. I think it's important for us to know that it, we have to invest in our future in order mm -hmm. to get to the place that we wanna be. And that investment doesn't have to be monetarily. It can be our time and using our talents to advance uh, a shared mission that, that you're passionate about. For me, it was addressing climate and driving sustainability. Hopefully, it's the same for you as well. And then I'd say, you know, through the years and, and the experiences that I've gotten, you really become a subject matter expert. There aren't many people out there that have the unique experiences that I've gathered over the years, not just in local government, 
but in community organizing, in actual scientific research on the ground, as well as in policymaking and program development to drive this stuff forward from a city level and now at this federal level. And I think we just have to own the the, the fact that you know these are these are opportunities that our generations are are quickly going to need to fill in order to accelerate. Many of these positions aren't even created. They're literally being created as we speak and will be in the coming years. And so we just need to be out there making sure that you're trying to align your discipline, whatever that might be. It could be in education or communications or marketing. Align it with a passion and and hopefully sustainability uh, being that passion. Try to get internships throughout your schooling that aligns with that as well. And, and, you know, on top of that, look for professional associations and community groups that are also in that space. Those who are interested in green buildings and urban sustainability. There are groups like USGBC, U.S. Green Building Council. Uh, there are community-based organizations on the ground like Clio Institute and Ideas for Us and so many great organizations that you can really get that experience, find that that network of people, and from there, let that snowball continue to build and, and pursue that that passion. I think that's naturally how things have just grown for me. Um, your so work ethic and your curiosity is really, really admirable. I think that anyone listening right now, you know, take these tips and really try to harness every thing that he's you know putting out there because this is free game right now and also mm-hmm. if you want to get into like the climate like the climate energy environmental like workforce it is so hard to find a job in it like it, yes. in my opinion it is like one of the most competitive workforces because people really understand that their future is at risk here and they want to dedicate their life to that mm-hmm. so people mm-hmm. need to take advantage everything that you're saying right now you need to take advantage of all the opportunities that are offered to you when Absolutely. you're in college and for those of you that are in college right now and in high school, it may be hard to find an internship. I get it. I struggled with it. But just doing what Chris did, going up to like something that was already in your school, being like, hey, let me work for you for free. If you have the capacity, I know not everyone has the privilege to do so. Um, it really can mm-hmm. make a difference. Like, Make sure that you're taking advantage of all the connections you have. Absolutely. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. And there are some programs as well that... Um, that provide kind of additional certifications and kind of just help enhance and, and add value to the traditional schooling that you're getting. And, and so I started out with uh, kind of a LEED GAA certification. This this LEED, LEED stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, right? It's a certification for buildings, but it's also a certification for professionals in the sustainability world. And I thought that that was a really great certification that provided this foundational knowledge around urban sustainability, everything from the materials and resources to energy and the atmosphere issues to the sustainable site, uh, to our transportation issues, to water, waste and recycling and composting. I mean, it really gives you a very holistic uh, uh, perspective of this topic of sustainability. And then it might allow you to identify an area that you're super passionate in and you want to go deep. Mm-hmm. Whether it is energy or transportation or waste or water or architecture or, you know, et cetera. And I think it's really cool that you're taking everything that like you learned and now you're taking it to the federal level. So I kind of want to hear more about the new office that's inside the energy department that was created. Everyone mm-hmm. buckle up because it's a really, really long <laughs> word. It's the Energy Efficiency and Conservation Block Grant Program that could be used as a vocal warm up. I kind of want to hear <laughs> a little bit more about it and how Florida communities could benefit from it. 
Sure. Well, let me take a step back before okay. I dive into EECBG. I'm going to give you a, an overview of what's been happening at the Department of Energy. And it okay. is truly historic. Less than a year ago, in November of 2021, Congress passed the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. We call that the bill, B-I-L. And that has already started to transform the work here at the Department of Energy. In August, um, President Biden also signed, August of 2022, this year, President Biden signed what's called the Chips and Science Act into law that really works on bolstering American manufacturing, strengthening our national security, you know, developing resilient supply chains here locally. And then there's the Inflation Reduction Act, what they call the IRA or the mm -hmm. IRA. And that was the most consequential energy legislation in, quite frankly, you know, half a century, if not more. So what has happened is in less than a year, the Department of Energy has collected over a hundred billion dollars of resources and funding that is intended to scale clean energy infrastructure unlike we've ever seen before. Hmm. These measures are and basically collectively are allowing the United States to move towards the president's very aggressive climate goals. And that is to achieve a 50 to 52 percent reduction by 2030 and a full net zero economy by 2050. And in order to do that, we need 100 percent of our electric grid to be powered by clean energy by 2035. These are the big overarching goals that are pushing the Department of Energy and quite frankly, US government agencies writ large towards uh, this historic moment. So with this infusion of funding, what with our secretary, Jennifer Granholm, quickly realized is that the Department of Energy, historically, we just celebrated, by the way, our 45th anniversary today of the US DOE. And in the last 45 years, DOE has been focused on research, development, and demonstration projects. We have not really been an agency that's focused on deploying infrastructure at the scale that we're needing to here to meet the mark, right? And so the secretary quickly said, we need to reorganize DOE. We need to lift up an infrastructure office that is solely focused on deploying that capital for our infrastructure. And we need to create sub offices like the one that I'm leading in SCEP that ultimately will focus on different components of that clean energy future. And there are a couple different components. One of them is what's called manufacturing and supply chains office. And as I mentioned, it's about building that domestic manufacturing supply chain resilience. Number two, there's what's called the grid deployment office. We're gonna need to almost double the current electric grid that we have today that we've been building over the mm -hmm. last 150 years. We need to almost double it in another 30 to 40 years in order to meet the mark and allow to infuse all of the electric vehicles and distributed energy resources and microgrids, we're going to need to build out a grid. So there's a whole office, grid deployment office, that's focused on transmission and distribution grids, grants, loans, you know, building this stuff out. Mm -hmm. Then there's the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations. This is about demonstrating these, these bleeding edge technologies that have been working in the lab, but now let's put them into the field in the real world. So things like hydrogen hubs and building out the hydrogen economy, this is essential to achieving net zero economies, you know, economy wide. Uh, so hydrogen hubs, a, a funding announcement just went out last week for $7 billion to build these hubs across the country. Uh, they're also working on things like small modular reactors and, and, you know, other kind of bleeding edge technologies. And then there's SCEP, the Office of State and Community Energy Programs. And this really is intending to be the front door to the Department of Energy for states, tribal governments, cities, counties, school districts, even nonprofit organizations like WIO. And the idea is that 
historically, DOE has had a bunch of resources that have been living, you know, fragmented throughout the department and different program offices and one-offs, two-offs over here. And instead, the secretary said, we need to centralize this work. We need to bring together all of the functions or the key functions that that in, interface with states, tribals, locals, and be able to centralize that work and, and provide efficiencies and really provide a much more meaningful engagement with those stakeholders, unlike we've seen. So, so that's where SCEP has uh, essentially, you know, been been charged to to build. And um, ultimately, this is a really exciting opportunity because I'm coming from local government, right? Mm-hmm. I'm coming from almost a decade on the ground in the city of Orlando, developing policies, implementing new programs to drive clean energy and decarbonization, among other things. Yeah. Uh, and local government is so important in the process, too. So it's so good that you're there. So wait, like you've just explained so much. There's so many incredible things going on. And we still haven't gotten into the energy efficiency and conservation block grant program, yes. right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> there is a, a lot, lot going oh, on. Yeah, right. <laughs> So I'm getting there now, and this is where I'm going to start to dive into these funding. So SCEP, now that you know kind of the the idea and how this formed, SCEP oversees $6 billion worth of formula and competitive grants Mm -hmm. to those stakeholders that I talked about, $10 billion worth of consumer rebates that just got passed through the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm -hmm. And then this whole community engagement function where we're being asked to think about how does DOE actually have a ground game? How do we work meaningfully with communities of concern, with small, with remote, with with rural communities, with tribal governments that often have been so far left behind that, that, you know, quite frankly, it's going to be very difficult for them to meet the mark and to catch up. So how do we accelerate them and focus on the neediest communities the, the communities of, of, of color, obviously our BIPOC mm-hmm. communities being the most pressing. Because of the president's executive order on Justice 40, the whole goal is at minimum 40% of these resources going to disadvantaged communities. That's the floor. And I'll tell you, our, our, our director and our office here at SCEP have really mentioned that that is the floor. Our goal is to hit 60 plus percent of those resources going to the right communities. So SCEP, in terms of these funding at a high level, there's billion in the weatherization assistance program. This program is to increase energy efficiency, increase health and safety, and reduce energy costs for low-income households uh, by hundreds of dollars every year. So weatherization is an amazing program. It's been going on for 40 years. Because of the bill, we got $3.5 billion, a huge bump up. That's a lot. Like, wow. (laughs) It's a lot of money. So that's only one, right? Secondly, we have specific money for schools and nonprofit organizations. There's $500 million provided to cleaner schools for our children and our teachers by essentially providing money that they can use to upgrade their buildings with energy efficiency. They can add rooftop solar improvements. They can even buy electric vehicle infrastructure if needed for their buses. And this, of course, is along with the $5 billion that EPA has to replace thousands of polluting diesel school buses with electric buses. So so we're trying to also braid what we're called braiding these resources between what DOE has, what EPA has, what HHS, what HUD has, right? Our idea here behind SCEP is to really be this this connective tissues amongst these various programs. And that gets me to EECBG, Energy Efficiency and Conservation Block Grants. This is $550 million because of the bill 
that has been uh, basically allocated through a formula fund. So Congress basically already d- defined how the money is going to go out to cities and counties based on the size of them. But ultimately, that money is money that these cities and counties don't have or, or even tribal governments don't have to apply to. And it supports them in developing and implementing a wide range of clean energy programs and projects that will create jobs, that will drive local economic investment from the private sector, that will reduce carbon emissions and ultimately improve public health at large. Um, And so those are really only three of over a dozen different funding programs. And we'd be here a long time diving into (laughs) all of them. But it just gives you an idea. $16 billion that SKEP has. And all of this money is trying to center low-income and disadvantaged communities and get to advancing this clean energy future that we're driving towards. So all of this because we're clearly in a climate emergency. We all agree on that at this point. And we're all trying to make those necessary steps to fight against it, right? And Mm -hmm. we see that now, even with Hurricane Ian hitting us in September here in Florida, and and even our interview being uh, rescheduled because of it. So this isn't something that's happening tomorrow. It's not something, you know, that can hold it's off anymore. Now. Yeah, it's here. And yes, I want I, I want I really want you to kind of break down to you know, the communities here in Florida. Can you let them know how they can access these funds because it's important now mm-hmm. more than ever. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Listen, the Biden-Harris administration and the entire team here in this administration, we know that there is no greater challenge facing this nation and our planet than the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. It's not even climate change anymore, climate crisis. In fact, I heard this morning we had uh, the second gentleman come to our 45th anniversary here uh, representing, obviously, the president. And that was his that was one of his remarks that this is no longer climate change. This is an emergency. We are in a climate crisis. and, And that's the future that we need to start to address to. So so it's at that level of urgency. And I'll tell you, I'm feeling it. I'm two months into this role and I'm feeling that uh, ambition and that urgency, not just from our leader here, Secretary Granholm, but but across this administration. And it's really refreshing. I mean, you have your hands full, too. Like you are literally trying to fix decades of climate neglect and Oh and neglect in, their, in in communities that need it the most. Right. That's the sad part of this. Uh, but it's but the opportunity ahead, right? It is sad that that's been the case, but we're here to fix it. So how do Florida communities get access to this stuff? We need to get organized, okay? We need to get organized. First and foremost, I would say that I'm learning that a lot of this money is flowing through the state energy offices across the country. And so one of the most important things to do is to reach out to our state energy offices, reach out to Kelly Smith Burke. She's an, a, a fantastic state energy official here in Florida. Uh, she is the director of the office and really an ally. I've worked with Kelly many times over the years on several programs and, and couldn't speak highly, more highly about her work and, and what they're trying to do. Sometimes they face some, some roadblocks as well, but ultimately building the relationship so that the state energy office knows about your community and your community's priorities is critical. That's step one. Make sure you're on the radar. But I do have a quick question for that. So like, you know, to some people listening, they want to access these funds. Messaging your state energy office sounds like a really big thing to do. Like how do mm. how, how would someone listening even like go about doing that? Sure. Well, first step is to, you know, go online 
and look up the Florida State Energy Office and start to do some research about the programs that the State Energy Office currently provides, some of the current grant opportunities, even outside of this DOE funding that they're offering. Because you'd be, I was surprised when I started to look into what they offer, and it's just a matter of awareness. Mm -hmm. So Google it. You'll find the information on the website. There's also contact information for the team, and I would encourage you to send them an email reach out to them or send them an email and and let them know about your organization or your local government, city or county, or even your school district. And the fact that you're interested in building a relationship with the state energy office so that as the, the bipartisan infrastructure law funding, the, the Inflation Reduction Act funding starts to come down to the states, that that you're already engaged, that you're not trying to build the relationship while also trying to get money, yeah. but you're starting to establish that. So to me, that's step one. Step two is we need to start to get organized in our communities. One of the things that I did before leaving uh, Orlando was I helped to facilitate a federal funding workshop. And basically, we booked an entire day. It was, it was a eight-hour day, eight-hour kind of mini conference where I brought together 19 go governments at the state, regional, local, county, city, even the, the airport, the regional planning council, the expressway authority, the public school system, you know, all of the quasi government and, and uh, agencies together so that we can first and foremost educate each other about what our priorities are for climate inequity. So I had each individual agency put together a one PowerPoint slide with five top five priorities for climate inequity and each one of them got to present. We also heard from federal agency representatives from DOE, EPA, DOT about the grants that are coming down. And then the magic happened when we realized that there were so many synergies that we weren't aware of. We broke out into these different topical areas around housing and energy efficiency, around uh, public transportation and, you know, obviously electric vehicles around renewable energy and other topics. And since then, those teams have continued to meet on a monthly basis and already have ideated around projects that they're going to be able to apply to when the funding announcements for all these grants come out. Right. So now we're not trying to once the funding announcement comes out, we're not trying to, you know, quickly hurry and bring together people and, and come up with some type of idea off the hook. But we're, we're spending some intentional time to develop something that's meaningful and transformative for our community that can benefit multiple stakeholders. It's about creating this culture of partnerships and collaboration in order to to truly uh, bring down this capital and to make these transformations a reality. So. I think those are two of the most important things to get prepared. Obviously, thirdly, would just be educating yourself on our website about these funding programs. If you go to the energy.gov website and you look up our SCEP office, S-C-E-P, you'll see that on our page, we have listed out all of the grants, the, the Bill and IRA grants that we are managing. And you can click on one of those grants and it can provide you more information about the timelines, the eligible entities that can apply, uh, you know, and and essentially what the uses are for that specific grant. Just a step back real quick, you know, because I want to make sure that those that are listening understand because there's a lot being said now and this is all great information. But for those that are new to all of this, you know, I want to make sure that they understand what initiatives they may have, you know, for the people struggling at home, you know, what type of incentives are being offered to Florida residents? How can people benefit from this as individuals? 
Well, you know, the beauty about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it is focused on consumers. I often describe the bill, Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, as the big infrastructure dollars to put steel in the ground and build these huge transformations. The Chips and Science Act that was passed is really supporting our domestic manufacturing and supply chain resilience. And then the IRA were a bunch of this money for consumers. So I call it the the perfect storm for climate action because you have money for infrastructure, money for manufacturing, and then money for consumers to drive forward the adoption. And so for for everybody out there who is is interested in how you can upgrade your home to be more energy efficient and take advantage of these rebates and and these incentives, um, stay tuned because we're in currently the program design of these rebates and working with Treasury and working with the IRS and the Department of Energy to really focus on structuring these programs so that they're super easy to apply to. We wanna make it a point of sale rebate, meaning when you go to a Home Depot or a home improvement store and you buy your next heat pump water heater, we're we're intending that you'll get a rebate off the top when you purchase that water heater. You're not needing to apply, you're not needing to submit a form. The idea is a point of sale rebate. One of the challenges with that, just so you're aware of the complexity, is that there are uh, there are more rebates, more money for people who are lower income mm-hmm. and who are buying those assets. So the question becomes, how do we properly verify somebody's income in order to know what rebate amount they can get? Okay, and doing that on the spot at a cash register currently doesn't exist. So we're in the process of working with IRS and Treasury to figure out how do we make it simple for the everyday American to be able, to, when they have to go and upgrade their air conditioning system, their water heater, when they have to, you know, basically look at maybe, you know, improving their insulation or or weatherizing their home, they can uh, automatically basically get this rebate from the point of sale. And um, those are ways in which we're trying to incorporate uh, and and streamline this so there aren't a bunch of roadblocks, a bunch of paperwork that everybody has to do. uh, And ultimately, those benefits go to the households that need it most. Wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Like that was Awesome. You know, I I really do appreciate you breaking all of this down for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and another thing, too, that I think like is also really helpful is just like for people to understand that they can have re- rebates because that's something that a lot of people like forget about even when they're doing stuff with their utility company. So I really want to urge everyone that have high cost energy bills or that is desperately trying to have renewable energy or energy efficiency in their house to remember that the federal rebates are out there to make sure that you're looking out for them. So Yes, and there is a really quick, sorry to interrupt there, yeah, a no great worries. website, by the way, that DOE and the White House work together on polling. And if you go to cleanenergy.gov mm-hmm. or if you go to whitehouse.gov slash cleanenergy, you'll learn more about how you and your family can save on utility bills and get the support to purchase these energy saving appliances and ultimately access these economic opportunities. On that website, you can find out about which programs are available currently, which ones are coming and when they will be coming out um, so that you know basically uh, you can benefit from this American made clean energy. And I think that's, that's the ultimate goal. There's a ton of info about uh, benefits for installing rooftop solar on your home. Right now, households can receive a uh, a 30% investment tax wow. credit by doing that, which is up from 26% just last year because of the IRA. And that will that 30%, by the way, is locked in for a decade. People who go solar between now and 2032 will get 30% off of their rooftop solar. This is game changing. Uh, in addition, there's a bunch of information about upgrading your appliances. Right now, households can get 
up to 10% of their, uh, you know, basically of the cost of insulation materials, uh, energy saving windows and doors. Uh, they can they can also receive a $300 tax credit for purchasing, you know, uh, other types of heat pump equipment and the like. And so in Florida, millions of low and low and moderate income households are going to be eligible for rebates to cover the cost of installing these new efficient appliances. Right. There's ones about electric vehicles. There's some about, you know, heat pump, water heaters and the like. And so it's a great one stop shop about the consumer benefits of all of what we're talking about here and how to demystify it. You know what's so crazy to think about? Everything that you're saying are solutions to the climate crisis that exist. And I'm so happy that we're finally acting on them. But mm -hmm. you know, like we need to go further. So if you had a magic wand and you didn't have to worry about federal policy or funding or anything, what would you do? Well, this one, I'm going to have to say that I'm talking off the record here, right? I'm not going to be speaking on behalf of the Department of Energy, but but just personally, right? For me, in order for us to scale this, I think we need to do two really important things. First, we need to figure out a way to wean off of the hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies that go into the fossil fuel economy yep. to keep artificial prices low so that we keep it moving, right? Right now, if you just have, if we're on the same plane, if we're on the same playing field, renewable energy will outcompete any fossil fuel source mm -hmm. today if we're on the same playing field. But we're not on the same playing field. And there are hundreds of billions of dollars going into the industry every year to subsidize it, right? That's one. I'm cringing Second, right now as you're talking to me. I like get so mad thinking about it. It is. It's really, it's frustrating, especially when you see the inequities that we face and the challenges with education and the lack of funding there. I mean, there are so many more things we could be doing. But this is why people uh, think like it's not possible to make the transition. But if people are listening right now, it actually is possible to make the transition. This There's is just possible. all these things The second things big thing, in, in my opinion, is putting a price on externalities. It's one thing to reduce the subsidy on the front end, but we're also allowing these power companies and, and fossil fuel producers to pollute the planet literally for free. Mm -hmm. It's like they're using the atmosphere as a free sewer. And guess who's paying for it? All of us through our healthcare bills. So these fossil fuel companies are kind of pushing their externalities onto other industries like healthcare, which are heavily subsidized by American taxpayers. And, and we're having to burden that excess cost on health when really at the end of the day, we should just really be pricing the pollution that's creating public health and environmental crisis. And, and to me, if we don't address both of those over the coming decade, I don't, th I think we're going to miss the mark. And, yeah. and so those were the, uh, would be the two big things I would do if I had a magic wand and could, because other than that, we have the tools to your point, we have the solutions at our fingertips. We have the renewable energy systems. We have the financing. There's $130 trillion in the private sector that has been committed between now and 2035 to transition to clean energy, $130 trillion. So the private sector is saying, hey, if you have the projects, we'll fund them. Mm -hmm. And of course, our communities are saying we need clean energy. And, you know, consumers are saying it and cities want it. And now the world is pushing it. I really so, think the only thing in our way right now is lack of advocacy and education, because if the public knew about this, 
Yeah, absolutely. Let this be an invite to those that want to get more involved with climate policy and stay up to date with all of the information that's coming out. Please join the Gen Cleo movement and just stay mm-hmm. a part of what's happening, you know. Um, and and thank you, Chris, so much for coming on here and just preaching to us because this was so informative and it's just what we needed to get the people going, to let them know what's out there, you know, because a lot of the times they just get so overwhelmed with this. So this was huge for, mm-hmm. for us today. My pleasure. And honestly, I'm I'm so proud of the work that Clio Institute is doing down in Florida. I wish there was a Clio in every community across the country because we certainly wouldn't be in the same place. I tell you that the education you're doing uh, in schools around renewable energy, around climate change, what those kids can do, even as as early as elementary and middle school. I mean, that is how these transformations will happen uh, in perpetuity, right. And be locked in. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I, I really appreciate the work that, that you and other community-based organizations are doing on the ground. We and SCEP are going to try to figure out how we best support your groups. It's not enough to fund the cities and the school districts. How do we get to the CBOs? Trust me, that is on my mind. It is something that we're talking about often. Uh, there are some challenges with that and just statutory requirements that we're not able to do, but, that isn't stopping us. There are other ways to do it, other ways to partner with philanthropy and the private sector to fill those gaps. And we're going to continue, I think, as a team to move in the right direction. So thank you all for the invitation and and glad to hear that this was useful. Thanks. And I'm just so happy that you're in D.C. right now protecting the state of Florida. You're you're making us Floridians proud. And who knows, many, maybe Glennis and I will meet you up there one day and fight with you. And maybe one of our listeners will be inspired by this and be in D.C. with you as well. I hope so. Thanks so much, Chris. All right. Keep it up. Bye bye. Here at the Clio Institute, we believe that the best way to get people into the climate movement is through education. And one of the best ways to do that is by sharing House on Fire with your friends and family. So don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcasts. And House on Fire can be found on all channels where podcasts are available.